All right, book of Genesis chapter 24, and uh, let's begin reading in verse 1 together. Uh, Coming to the last section of Abraham's life, really the last act of obedience that he offers up to our Father in heaven. Abraham was now old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief of his ho- of servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to that country that you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought, out, who brought me out of my father's household and my nation or native land, and who spoke to me and promised to me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can go and get away from my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He sent out for Aram, Naharim, And made his way to the town of Nahor. This is the area of Mesopotamia to the north uh, area of uh, what we would know today as Syria and Turkey. About 500 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside of the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, O Lord God of my master Abraham, give me success and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. That is to say, a second cousin, distant cousin. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, Oh, by the way, I'll draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied the jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw draw more water and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me 
Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? It's the last account of God's working in the life of Abraham. It's a fairly familiar story and it's a very powerful story of the sovereignty of God. It begs a question that I think all of us wrestle with from time to time in our lives. How do you know and discern the will of God in your life? Now, obviously, in the context, the discussion is the discussion of marriage. That's the the topic or theme of the text. But the overlying theme of the text is how do I know and discern the plan, the sovereign plan of a holy God and its outworking in my daily life? We all face this question from time to time where we're trying to figure out what it is that God wants us to do. And I believe that this text will help us in learning how to discern and understand the guidance or governance of God as it is worked out in the life of his children. This text begins by telling us that there is an urgent need that Abraham in his later years is becoming more and more acutely aware of. His wife Sarah has passed away. We looked at that in chapter 23. He has a son who is now 37 to 40 years old. Abraham is aging. He is responsible for carrying on the lineage that will lead to the Messiah. So he is at a crucial place in the plan of God. He becomes conscious of the fact that through him, and particularly through his offspring Isaac, the promised seed is to come. There is no wife for Isaac at this point because she cannot be taken from the Canaanites who clearly in Abraham's understanding were without God People in his hometown were God-fearers. So Abraham comes up with a plan to see the work of God fulfilled. He senses a responsibility. So verses 1 and 2 basically tells you that there is this need for a bride for Isaac. Abraham senses a responsibility to do something about that. So he calls in his senior household servant. I want to say this real quick. When we read about slavery in the Old Testament, particularly in this context, Please understand that the kind of slavery that we're talking about here is not the racial slavery, okay, that was practiced in Britain and America. Okay, this is, this is not that kind of slavery. When you study this text and see the level and degree of trust that Abraham has in this man, who obviously is a man of God, you're going to see that as this unfolds, he has been affected by Abraham's life. He's not a slave. He's a household servant, and there's an important difference that I think we need to understand as we read through a text like this. Abraham did not have an abusive relationship with this man. He had a very powerful, trusting relationship with this man. So he calls him in, and in verse 2 he says, I want you to go to my homeland and get a wife for my son. Down in verse 4. Okay, it's where he gives the clarity. So he, he puts him under an oath. Okay, which is just in the ancient world, they had different ways of doing oaths. So he, taking an oath before Abraham, I will go and fulfill the directive you have given me. I swear to that. Okay, so this man is now getting ready to go on a long journey to Abraham's homeland, which is 500 miles away. The specific details are, get a wife for my son. So this is Abraham arranging a marriage for his son, Isaac. Okay, so... A little bit different than how we do things today, okay? And some of the girls are saying, yes, and we praise God for that, okay? Uh, This is the way it worked in the ancient world. Fascinatingly, last time I was in India two years ago, I met a man named Aju. Uh, His parents had put out an advertisement for his availability in local Christian publications. This is a fascinating thing. 
read through it, talks about status in life, education, background, all those kinds of things, a man devoted to the Lord, they still do that in that country. Okay, I actually ate dinner with a guy who, was, who last year experienced an arranged marriage. Okay, so in the Middle East, this would not be uncommon, even though to us, it sounds probably for the girls are saying, that's horrifying, not even humorous. Okay, so the key to this text is this. God needs to give direction because this servant is going back to a place that he has never visited. He has to trust God to help him get a wife for Abraham's son. That's the oath that he has put himself under. So the question I want to ask you is this. How do we discern and do God's will and experience God's blessing? How do we, how do we find the way that God is directing us in? J.I. Packer made this observation. He said, often God's guidance is more like headlamps than it is like a map. Okay, God's guidance is often more like headlamps than it is like a map. Which is to say what? God often shows us the next step in our life, but rarely does God show you the whole plan of your life. In fact, I, I think we could say this. It would probably be unwise for us to say, God, show me the rest of my life. And if God gave you that option, would you think about this? Would you want to see? Okay, my answer would be, you know what, no thanks. I, why? Why doesn't God show us? Because we can't handle more than one day. That's what Jesus says. Each day has enough trouble of itself. So when you're trying to discern and understand the will of God, you need to take it on a day-by-day, step-by-step basis. So that we understand God's leading, His governance, His guidance in our life is more like headlamps than the entire map. Okay? He's just, just like the, uh, the GPS gives you that, okay, make a right in 100 feet. Then do this. That's how God tends to work in our lives. Okay, so I want us to look at how can we discern this directing and pointing of God as it works out in our daily experience in small decisions and then in the larger, larger decisions that end up making up our lives. Because I hope all of us understand this this morning. Our lives are made by decisions. Who you are is made by the decisions that you make. So I think it's important that as we look at a text like this and see a sovereign God over the lives of these men and the women that are involved in this story, it is powerful to watch this story so beautifully unfold. So verses 1 through 9, and this is just, to to me, is, is, is amazing. Two commands are given. Okay, one is, go get a wife, not from Canaan. Okay, that is to say what? Abraham is to, or this servant is to find for Isaac a believing mate. Okay, do not take someone from an unbelieving place, that's Canaan. Go to my homeland and find someone who lives in the sphere of God-fearing people. Okay, so that's the first directive that is given. There is a clear command. So how do I discern the will of God? The first thing you need to do is this. Have a commitment to obey the clear directives and commands of God. When it comes to marriage, God is very clear. Only a believer for a Christian. Okay, that's, that's the, the clear directive of God. Don't take her from the Canaanites. That means this man is going to go on a 500-mile-plus journey that's going to take 25 days to two months, somewhere in that range, depending on how large the entourage is and how quickly they're able to travel. Okay? So he has a clear command from God, and what does he do? He obeys that command. The second aspect of this, if you will, directive or instruction to the servant 
hits is in response to attention. Notice the tension. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I take Isaac there? And what's Abraham's response? I won't even think about doing that. Okay, he gives her an immediate, do not take my son back there. In fact, so strong is Abraham's directive to the servant. He says, listen, if the woman is un unwilling to return with you, you are released from your obligation. Just come home and we'll seek God's will in another way. Do you see? But sometimes in our experience, we're obeying the clear commands of God. We go as far as we can in obedience. And sometimes we have to stop and wait for the directive of God. Abraham had the maturity to understand that, you know what? Okay, servant, good question. If she's unwilling to come, you're released. Just come home. Okay, but do not take my son there. Why is Abraham saying that? Okay, it's because Abraham is committed to obeying the objective or clear commands of God. What had God told him back in Genesis chapter 12? He told him, I want you to go to this land and stay there. I'm giving you this land. So anything that would threaten the fulfillment of God's promise and plan that he is sovereign over, Abraham is rejecting it. So when the servant says, well, should I just take him there and have him kind of, and this is a funny kind of thought, right? Maybe if I take him and show him to her, then she'll be overwhelmed and she'll say, okay, I'll go. Okay, you start, what is he thinking? Okay, she won't come. Because I described him to her. I don't have a photo. If I take him, then maybe she'll be more willing. Okay, it's an interesting, interesting picture. Abraham is like, don't even think about doing that. Okay, so the first thing we need to do as God begins to direct in our lives is what? Obey the clear commands. The clear command is, go get away from my son, not from the Canaanites. Do not take my son back there. Okay, why? Abraham was committed to his son walking in obedience. And he's teaching this household servant who presumably is going to outlive Abraham. He's directing him to not take his son back there and risk the promises. Okay, now the one principle that I think emerges out of this for marriage is this. For a believer, marrying a Christian is the only God-given option. And I think that extrapolates into a greater principle, and that is that a believer is only to date a believer. Okay, because dating presumably is preparation for a long-term permanent relationship. So find someone within the realm of God's will. Okay, so the first way to find God's will, God's plan for your life, obey his clear commands. And remember this, you don't need to pray about clear steps of obedience. Okay, there are plenty of things that you're going to need to pray about. Okay, one thing you don't have to pray about is should I do what God has asked me to do? Okay, don't you notice how direct Abraham is with this servant. He's giving him clear directives to guide him on his path. Verses 10 and 11 are fascinating because they cover a journey of 500 miles and somewhere between 25 days and two months. This servant arrives in this area of Nahor at the time when women go out to draw water. Okay, so in the ancient Near East, the ladies had this responsibility within the context of the household to provide the water for the house. So the servant, and here's what I like to think is, he just happens to arrive there at that time. Okay, no, what's going on? God is sovereign in all these things. He couldn't plan out a trip that long to arrive at that time of day. Okay, this is the sovereignty of God at, working in his, at work in his life. So verses 12 through 14, I think we're going to give us this directive, beginning of verse 12. Then he prayed, 
Oh, Lord God of my father Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring at the time when the waters come out or the daughters come out to draw water. Okay, so Abraham, this, this servant now is standing in this place and the first thing he does is he prays for guidance as he walks in obedience to the directives of God. Why? Because there were certain parts of this plan that were very clear, but there was a whole lot that was unclear. All that we know is that he's supposed to get a wife for Isaac from amongst the offspring of the family of Abraham. That's all we know. He doesn't know where she lives. He doesn't know anything about her. Except that God is directing his path. So what does he do? He immediately goes into a season of prayer. The tension that arises in this step of obedience. Okay, the, first, the tension in the first section is what? What if she won't come back? Okay, and God gives him clear directions. The tension here is, with all these ladies coming out, how am I going to know which one you chose for Isaac? I want you to notice the nature of the prayer that this man prays. Because this says so much about his knowledge and understanding of God. The purpose of his prayer in verse 12. And I just love how bold and direct this is. Give me success today. Okay, which is to say what? I want to find that woman today. I don't want to hang out here day after day at this well. Give me success today. Purpose of the trip, find a wife. Success would be defined as what? Finding a beautiful wife for Isaac. Okay, and so purpose of his prayer, give me success. Folks, when you are walking in obedience to God, you can pray this kind of prayer. You can experience a degree of boldness in asking God for the help that you desperately need in your circumstances in life. And this man is bold. And I love verse 13. He says, see, I am standing here. And you wonder what he's thinking. I feel like, you know, the kids say today, I feel like a creeper. Somebody comes up and says, what are you doing here? I am uh, I'm looking for a wife. <laughs> How do you say this without feeling weird? For yourself? Uh, actually, no. I'm looking for a wife for my master's son. Okay, he, he, can, he doesn't want to deal with any questions. Okay, I mean, in our flesh, what would we have done? Taken a poster board, draw a, you know, a sketch of this young man, okay, list his attributes. He's, he's wealthy. He's the son of a man who's going to inherit a lot. He has the blessing of God on his life, and he is attractive. Okay, and so that would, the, the human approach would be, let's show them these things that would attract them. That's what the servant was thinking originally, wasn't he? If she won't come, can I take him back as kind of like an advertisement? And Abraham says, don't think about doing that. Why? You'll jeopardize the promise. Walk in obedience. Here's a clear command. And when he gets there, what does he know? Okay, go to the, go to the city of Nahor and get a wife. Okay, I am here. But what does he, what can he do? He can't predict which one it is. And so he, he cries out to God with a passionate prayer for success. And then there's the boldness that asks for success today that he is assuming comes not from his wisdom, not from his gift of discernment, but from God. He says, God, you give me success today. Folks, this is the place of rest and trust in a God who is sovereign over our lives. You grant me success in my desires. See, you can make it happen, but we often make happen things that aren't the will and plan of God. Okay? We need to be hemmed in by the boundaries of objective truth, not our feelings. Okay, and when we get to a place where we're saying, you know what, there's 13 women walking out here to get water. I have no clue. You know what he does? It forces him to fall before God. And he prays. 
He says, God, you have to show me which one of these lovely young ladies coming out here is the one that you intend. So then he goes into this thing of specificity of prayer. It's almost like when Gideon puts out the fleece. He gets very specific with God. Why? He believes that God can make it happen. He says, God, I'm going to ask a woman to give me a drink. Okay, that's all I'm going to do. And then I'm going to stand back and watch what happens. Here's what, God, here's, what, here's what he says. He says, God, I want you first to make her a responsive, hospitable woman. Okay, and the, the, the normal hospitality of the day towards travelers would certainly be to give them a drink of water. But then the servant pushes a little further. Don't only let her be open and responsive to giving me a drink, but also give her a desire to water my ten camels. Okay, folks, understand this. Camels drink 20 to 25 gallons of water. The typical pitcher for carrying water was three gallons. And you had to go down steps to get the water and to bring it back up. So this is his specific request, his specific prayer to ask God to show him. How large is this faith that would expect that a woman would not only give him a drink, but also would say, would you mind if I watered your ten camels? 250 gallons of water. Okay, that's the, that's the character of the person that this man is seeking for his master's son. To me, it is it's just uh, fascinating. But the thing that I think that sticks out even more is the motive behind this prayer. Okay, and it, it comes out in a, in a word that has already been mentioned in this text. I want you to see if you can, if you can see this. Verse 12. Then he prayed, O Lord God of my master, give me success and show... What's the word you guys have there in your translations? Kindness? Any other? Loving kindness? Okay, some translations say faithfulness. Okay, verse 14. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your water jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one that you have chosen for your servant. By this I will know that you have shown kindness. To your master or to my master. Okay, now this is a fascinating word. This is the word that in the book of Psalms is always translated in the, in the New International Version, unfailing love. Okay, why does this man pray, believing that God can do something so incredible and odd? Because he believes in the unfailing love of God. Verse 12, verse 14, and then in verse 27, it comes up again. The reason he prays to God and throws himself completely to rest in God, thinking, I'm just going to ask one question, and then, God, you show me. What is, what's the motive behind this prayer? The motive is the loving kindness, this steadfast, unfailing covenant loyalty of God. God, you called Abraham into that promised land. You said you would give him a wife through whom godly offspring could come. You have to provide. Okay? And he cries out to God based on the previous goodness of God that has been poured into this man's life. He appeals to God's character and then prays with boldness. The same word is used in Lamentations chapter 3. It is the, because of the Lord's mercies that we are, are not condemned. His mercies, Lamentations 3.23 says, are new every morning. Great is thy, what? Faithfulness. Same word. What is the servant saying? We've been unperfect people. But you made a contract with us. You covenanted with us. That he would guide and protect us. He has absorbed the heart of his master. 
And the thing that also stands out to me is Abraham must have had an incredible testimony with this servant. He, 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 he caught by being around Abraham the love that this man has for God, the trust that Abraham had for God. He got it by being around a man who walked in such faith in spite of all the failures. That's the amazing thing. Psalm 33, verse 18 uses this word. It says, The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him and on those who hope in His unfailing love. This servant is saying, God, I am at Your mercy. Look at all these women coming. I don't know. How do I know which one? How does a man tell? How do you know? He says, God, you have to. You, you promised. And then I love Psalm 44, 26. Rise up and help us. This is what the psalmist says. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. And that's the heart of the servant as he bows before God and says, God, I don't know which one to choose. Show your plan, your will, because of your unfailing love and faithfulness and loyalty to my master. So in discerning God's will, he prays for guidance, trusting that God will, in fact, provide. That kind of prayer honors God. Do you, this morning, have such a view of God that when you pray, you say, God, I'm trusting you. I am counting on you. Why? Because I have taken steps as far as the headlights shine. I don't have a map for the rest of my life. Show me your will. I trust you. Okay, that's, that's what God promises to guide that kind of person who says, rise up and help us. Show your unfailing love. And I think one of the principles that would emerge here is you look at this story of this servant. I, th I think you would have to say that for him, prayer was not, oh man, they all just walked by and now I better, I better ask God because none of them look like the right person. Prayer wasn't a last resort for this man. Prayer was the first action he took. Why? Because he believed in the loving kindness of God. He believed in the sovereignty of God. So he bowed his head and prayed for a woman who would be the son of one of his family members so would be in the realm of a God-fearing group of people. He trusted God to guide and to direct his steps. Is your prayer life sporadic, tired, and intermittent? Or do you pray bold prayers for success in the will and plan of God in your life? Verse 15 is powerful. Very, very powerful. Before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with the jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel. Now, here's what's interesting. When you read this part of her being the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, do you know where that's first said? Go back to the end of chapter 22. When Abraham was willing to give up his son as a sacrifice to the glory of God, and God preserved the life of his son through a substitute, it's at the end of that chapter that you find this statement first made. And now the servant has come into the land of Nahor, into the homeland, and with this history in the background, that there is a relative, and he has this, in a sense, a little bit of a roadmap about this immediate future. So he prays for God's direction. Rebecca, who is of that family, becomes apparently the woman to him very, very quickly. Now, here's the third thought that I think emerges. God guides the faithful. Okay, what has this man done? He hasn't, he hasn't demonstrated any brilliance. You know what he's demonstrated? Simple obedience and a prayerful heart of dependence on the loyalty of God. Okay, so he hears what Abraham says. says, okay, Abraham, if that's what you want me to do, I'll go do it. 
Secondly, when he gets to the place of decision, he cries out to God, not as the last resort, but as the first resort. The next thing he begins to experience is the guidance of God upon the life of faithful people. How would he know that she was the woman that he was to take home with him? How would he know? This text tells us a couple of things. Verse 16, it says, The woman was beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring and filled the jar and came up again. Okay, that's all you got. That's all you got. Okay? And so, first thought is this. There's the test of purity. This servant is concerned about finding a woman of purity, and he finds it for his master's son. There's also the test of beauty. And folks, let me just be very honest, okay? Your wife should be attractive to you. Okay? And let's also be honest. Not every woman is attractive to every man. But your wife should be attractive to you. Okay? She, for you, sets the standard of what beauty really is. Okay? And so for, Abra, for, for Isaac, or this servant, I'm sorry, ultimately for Isaac, he sees this woman and he acknowledges that she is a woman of purity sexually. He sees that she is a woman that would be attractive to Isaac. And then third, you find this test of virtue. How will she respond when he asks her to give him a drink? That's, that's the test he set up. So verse 17, the servant hurried to meet her. Why? He was astonished at her beauty. He thought that she would be a good candidate, but he still has attention. What is the tension? I don't know. I don't know if she's the one out of all the choices that are walking by. So he goes to her quickly and, and, and said to her, please give me a drink of water from your jar. Drink, my Lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for you for the camels too. And he's thinking, oh, my word. Okay, what is this? This is an industrious, hardworking, generous, hospitable woman. He's like, he's stunned at, at the, 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 the mercy of God, at the loyal love of God, his unfailing promise to direct his steps. And I love what verse 21 says. So she starts drawing water. She's watering the camels, which most, most of the commentaries say is probably going to take about an hour and a half because she's got to walk down to the well, scoop up the water, come back up. She's got a three-gallon pitcher. She has to get 250 gallons of water to do the math. But she's willing to do it, not because she was asked. She volunteered. So she is a woman of virtue, but he's realizing he's in attention. How does he know? Okay, she's willing to do these things, and she's beautiful, and she's pure. How do I know? Verse 23 is the final test. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out this gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he asked her. And this is, this is the moment when the, the, the tension in the story of this building over finding the woman is resolved as a result of obedience and prayer and then stepping out into obedience then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night, this entourage of men? She answered, and I love this, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, born to Nahor. 
And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. And just all of a sudden, this after this long journey, this whole plan starts to come together. And this man is, is deeply humbled by this set of circumstances. The last test that he has to use is what? It's the test of family, her pedigree. Okay, whose family are you from? If you're here this morning as a single and you're considering marriage, ask yourself this question. What are the biblical and practical principles that I am using to determine the person that God would be leading my life towards? Do I have a test of purity? It doesn't necessarily mean that if someone has made a mistake in their life that they're unavailable to you, but are they pursuing purity before God? Are they godly? Do they have practical characteristics that make them attractive? Are they beautiful to you? Okay, are they in the family of God? Are they a believer? Okay, those are the, the basic tests, and then you're going to have all kinds of other little extraneous practical texts, but there are core biblical tests that you are to use to determine the will of God. Why does this woman serve? Why is Rebecca so willing in this context to serve? She has no idea what this is all about. Why does she serve? This is the model of her life. It's the pattern of her life. She doesn't choose that day to say, oh, this guy's going to be so gorgeous and so wealthy and so well-established in his homeland that I'm going to modify my behavior so I can get him. Okay? That is devastating to do that to people. Okay? Because who you are when you get married is who you're going to be in your marriage. Okay, this woman was a woman of virtue. This servant is watching this. He's blown away. Verse 26. How does a faithful person respond when God guides them in a path of obedience like this? And I, I just love this verse because we... Notice his response. It says, then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord. Okay, he didn't go to a worship seminar to figure out how to worship God. You know what he did? He allowed the, the, the guidance of God in the path of obedience to overwhelm him so that he, he, under the weight of the glory of this moment, what does he do? He falls to the ground. He can't sustain himself physically. The glory and power of God manifested in this situation. You can imagine Rebecca's like, I just invited you to come over. This guy falls apart in front of her. Not because of Rebecca. I mean, she was, she was glorious and he could recognize her beauty. She was attractive. She was a woman of virtue and purity and dignity. All those kinds of things. What drives him to his knees? The glory of God. Now, folks, can I say this to you? Especially young people. Let the glory of God be the thing that rules your life. That drives you to the ground under the weight of the glory of God. Not someone's beauty. Let the glory of God affect you. Because when it does, you won't need a worship seminar. The Spirit of God in your heart is going to be prompting what this man offers to God. A joyful worship of what? God's unfailing love. And there's the theme that I think rules this chapter. The sovereignty of God expressed through His unfailing love in the life of obedient children. And when God works in that matrix, in that paradigm, Guess what happens? You will experience a joy in your heart, falling to your knees, but it will feel good. It won't be the falling to the knees of brokenness over mistakes I've made, crying out to God. It will be the falling to your knees, enjoy God. Thank you for allowing me to observe biblical principles in my dating relationships, in my selection of a mate, in my workplace. God, thank you that you're working as I walk in obedience. You'll be humbled and you'll be filled with this 
this joy that you can't get any other place. I just, I just love the picture of this worship. This kind of joy is only found in the path of surrender. It's only found in your willingness to become nothing so that God can become something. And isn't that exactly what happens in verses 13 to 14? He gets by the well and he says, okay, God, I'm standing here. I don't know what else to do, so I'm just going to ask you to guide my steps. God guides his steps in a way that was in response to simple obedience that went on this journey 500 miles looking for the woman that God had for Isaac. And when God provides, he just, he, he just under the weight of the glory of God and the sovereignty of God, he just experiences a joy that you can never experience in the path of disobedience. Folks, here's the thing I think that we need to understand. Disobedience to God always offers perks. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. But when you commit to a life of integrity and surrender to God's call, obeying His commands when they're clear, you will experience a joy that will cause that to fade away. Okay, so I urge you, find the plan of God in each area of your life, in marriage, in work, and whatever it is. Find the plan of God and adhere to it. And He will begin to overwhelm you with the joy that will put a new song in your mouth, even a song of praise to our God. Verse 27 is, I think, a very, very beautiful verse. Notice what it says. It says, Praise be to, God, to the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and loyal love, unfailing love to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on this journey. The King James Version translates this statement, I being in the way, the Lord led me. Okay, what is he saying? I was in the path of obedience and it was there that I met God. It was there that God revealed his will and purposes to me. So what do I need to do? Go as far as the headlamps shine. And when God puts you in a place where you have to stand there, just say, God, here I'm standing. I'm waiting for you to give me the next step of obedience so that I can follow you. And when God does, he will bring you an overwhelming and amazing joy. Well, Rebecca invites him back to the house there's continued hospitality. They offer a very beautiful and, and powerful feast and, and, and meal to him, recognizing that he's from the extended family. And all of us learned this on Thanksgiving. Food will mess with your priorities, right? Uh, my daughter's made an observation last night that if there's a can of these things called monster cookies in our house sitting on the table, which are, it's about lunchtime, oatmeal, Chocolate, peanut butter, I don't know what else, the sugar is in there, brown sugar, all kinds of stuff's in there. My daughter made the observation last night that Dad, you just like keep coming back. In my mind, early this morning, I thought as if I have no control, right? Because <laughs> that food, that desire is ruling my life. Here's what's fascinating in this text they prepare this huge feast, and the servant will have none of it. He, they get it all ready. They invite him to come in. And they even go out to him and say, I think it's in verse 31. They say, why are you standing out here? You know why he's standing out there? Because he's looking for the will of God. And most of us are we're moved by our passions and our desires for temporary benefit. That's all the food is. Okay, we're moved by that. This man isn't, the meal is not impressing him. Why? He is there for a purpose. And the purpose of God is killing all other desires and causing him to say, I want to know if this is God's plan. Right? And it's, so get down to verse 32 and verse 33. So the man 
went to the house, and the camels were unloaded, straw and fodder were brought for the camels, and water for him and his men to wash their feet. Then food was set before them, but he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. That's amazing. Okay, most moms can remember their teenager coming home from school at about 3 in the afternoon. Okay, and there is a driving passion in young people when they get home from school. They bang open the door. What's the first thing that comes out of their mouth? No, that's the first thing. First thing that comes out of their mouth is, Mom, right? You're here? I'm hungry. Okay, second thing. Driven by that, that, that passion. This man is looking at an elaborate meal, but what is consuming his mind? What's consuming his mind is, is this the plan of God? I will not eat until I have told you what I have come to say. And how this reminds me of the Savior who seeks out a woman at a well to bring her rescue and to bring her to be part of His bride, the body of Christ. And He satisfies her in that place with something that water could never do. And in that context, here's what the Savior says. This bringing of this woman into fellowship with myself and with my Father in Heaven through the work of the Spirit. This work is better than food. The disciples come with a meal, right? And they say to him, do you want to eat? He says no. And they're saying, huh, somebody must have brought him something to eat. And what is Jesus' response? I have food to eat that you do not know. My food is to do the will of him that sent me. And folks, here's what will happen. It's a silly illustration to use it this way. But it's the way the Savior dealt with it. The desire for food is overwhelming when you're extremely hungry. Kids go, I'm starving. You couldn't withhold them from the, couldn't keep them from the food. The Savior is kept from the food by what? By this greater joy in his life. That is exactly what this servant experiences. As he walks in obedience to the will and directives of God, he sees something that is so glorious and so joy-producing and so overwhelming, driving him so weighty to the ground that he won't eat. He won't enjoy the party. And, and he, he's there. I mean, he's like, oh, yes, this is so good. But what is he saying? Wait, wait, wait. I think the last principle is something like this. Let doing God's will be your highest priority and let it be your greatest joy. Folks, how many of us would not like to be where this servant was that day? God has made my journey successful. God has provided, and like the Savior, He is enjoying doing the will of His Father in heaven. And it is bringing to Him a joy that the things of this world could never, ever bring. Verse 62 to 67, He takes Rebecca home. She sees Isaac walking in her direction. And what does she say to the servant? She says, Is that the guy? With joy? God's plan being fulfilled? Isaac comes, she veils herself in modesty, and they embrace, and they're married. And later at the end of the text, the last thing it says is, and Isaac loved Rebecca. What's it all about? It's all about the sovereignty of God working out his unfailing love in the life of obedient believers who are willing to walk by the amount of light that God has given for the day who aren't stressing about the next day and the next plan and who's it going to be in my life, not stressing about those things, 
but someone who is simply seeking the plan and purpose of God. If you're single this morning, don't worry about finding the right person. Worry about becoming the right person. That's what God wants for you. That's who Rebecca was. The virtue and the beauty and the purity didn't happen at that moment. It's who she was. And when God came by in the form of this servant to find this woman, He found her in the place she should have been in. Focus. Don't worry about who it's going to be. Focus on God's plan. Remember, if God wants you to marry, He'll bring the right person at the right time and in the right place. Put your dreams, put your concerns, put your anxieties in His capable hands and trust Him. And as you do that, you will be released to walk in obedience and see the plan and will and work of God. Concerning God's guidance, knowing God's will involves planning and prayer. This servant heard God's direction. He went as far as he could in the light that God had given him, but it involved planning and it involved prayer. It's how you discern and find the will of God. But the thing I want to say to you this morning is this. Do not expect such direction from God if you withhold from him the obedience that he deserves. Okay, what did this man say in the King James Version? He says, I being in the way, what happened? The Lord led me. But if you're living in a life of disobedience, here's what I believe God will do. God will take his hands off of your life and let you govern and rule your own life. But remember the way of transgressors is hard. Bring yourself back into the path of obedience and guidance. Follow God. Be committed and devoted to God in every area of your life and he will direct your paths. When you are faithful, guide will guide you. His guidance, however, is more like headlamps than it is like a road map. And so the book of Proverbs says to us in that amazing verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, look to him. What's the servant say? I'm standing here. I'm in Nahor. The women are coming out. God, guide me. And he will, the text says, make your paths straight. And then you'll have this privilege. you have the privilege of looking back and saying, okay, only a fool would not trust God with your life. Only a fool. The hymn writer said it this way, He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught, whate'er I do, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. Lord, I would grasp my hand in thine, nor ever murmur, nor repine. Content whate'er my lot may be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me by his own hand. He leadeth me, his faithful follower I would be. For by his hand, he leadeth me. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. 